0: Well, good, morning. good morning. My name is Nate, one of the pastors here, and I've got the great privilege to be able to teach the Bible this morning. And uh, as we were singing those last two songs, God was just impressing on me how blessed we are to be here and to worship Him. No matter what you're going through in your life, to be able to come in and and sing those words and i know that often you come in here and you are so overwhelmed by life maybe it's a a sin that you're you're struggling with and you feel like man i've just messed up again or maybe life has just kicked you in the face and you feel like i don't know how i'm going to get through this next day and you literally had to pick yourself up and get yourself here and you feel like you're just dragging yourself into this room on a Sunday morning or maybe you're just, you've just got these overwhelming fears that you're dealing with and you come in and you, you see the words on the screen and you know that you're, you want your heart to be in the right place and you want to, your heart to be in this place where you're just overwhelmed with joy about the Lord but the reality is you're just like, I'm struggling just to believe Let me encourage you that coming here and singing these songs, even in those moments, are so beneficial to your soul. Because in those moments, even when you're struggling to believe, as we sing those songs, what are you doing? You're reminding your soul of God's mercy. And a lot of times, even as I was sitting there this morning and I was struggling with with some own just personal fears and and, and trials as I'm singing those songs and God's reminding of the, the mercy that he has given us. Man, it's just this overwhelming peace just comes over me. And so it is good to be here today. Let me pray before we get started one more time that God would use his word to continue to remind us of his mercies. Father, often we read your commandments and we, we know that you have given them to us for our protection We know that they're they're a light in the darkness. They're there to remind us how desperate we are and how desperately we need Jesus to save us, but we confess that often our hearts are prone to wander. We've not loved your laws as we should, and so... Right now, I pray that your spirit would soften our hearts, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see your beauty and your mercy, your grace, that you would keep us from the temptation of our minds wandering off into other places right now, and that we would be fully here in this moment, listening to your word. Thank you for the cross, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have been walking through the the book of Luke together, and we've come to a point in the story where this Crazy crowd has surrounded Jesus. I mean, think like thunder over Louisville, but they're not there to see fireworks. They're there to hear Jesus teach and maybe see a miracle. I, I think some of them are probably motivated because they've heard Jesus do some pretty cool stuff. And so they're literally walking o- over each other, they're pushing each other out of the way, they want to see Jesus, and so Jesus uses this opportunity, the crowd is there, he starts teaching them, and his message over the last several weeks has been this warning, don't be like the hypocrites, don't be like these these Pharisees who love to make themselves known, who, who look really good on the outside, but on the inside, they're just cold and dead. Don't be these guys that they come in on a Sunday morning and they put up these faces and they smile and they they act like everything is okay, but then tomorrow they're, they're back to their so, same old patterns of life. Don't be like the hypocrites, he says. Don't be, instead he says, look, don't fear other people because that's what the hypocrites were doing. They, they so cared about what other people thought of them that they, it caused them to be fake. He says, don't be fake. Don't. I have this fear of other people. Instead, fear God. Fear the one that, that can not just kill your body, but can throw you into hell. And today, it's really interesting. This guy just kind of pops out of the crowd, out of, out of nowhere. And he goes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus to settle this dispute between him and his brother. And in classic fashion, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach the crowd a lesson about the 10th commandment, thou shalt not, who knows it, covet. If, you've been in, if you were raised in the church and you were in Sunday school, yeah, you know that. Thou shalt not covet. And so we're going to talk about what does that mean? Thou shalt not covet. It's a, it's a lesson that we, def, we definitely need to hear in America still today. And so we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 12. If you're not there, it's on page 965 if you've got one of our Bibles. Uh, we're picking up in verse 13, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 21, and then we're going to walk through this together. This is God's Word. Listen carefully. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, so he turns to the crowd, and he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry.'" But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so the the occasion here, we, we don't exactly know what the problem that this man has, that when he comes to Jesus, we don't know whether maybe this man has had this issue with his brother and his brother has, like, stolen part of his inheritance. And so maybe he's just asking for justice. My brother won't give me what rightly belongs to me. Or maybe it's his older brother, and back then the firstborn got half of, twice as much of an inheritance as anybody else and so maybe he's just simply jealous that his brother is getting more of an inheritance. I kind of feel like that's probably what's going on here. We don't know for sure, but the response that Jesus gives indicates that, first of all, look, Jesus is saying, look, my mission here on earth is not to deal with these trivial matters, okay? I came to introduce and to Usher in the kingdom to announce that the kingdom of God is here, and so you need to repent of your sins and trust, believe. He came there so that he could give an inheritance that would be eternal life, not an inheritance of money. And so he's looked, look, I'm not here to deal with these trivial matters. And so this man, listen, th- th- this is what's going on here. This man comes to Jesus, but he doesn't really want Jesus, does he? He wants what he thinks Jesus can give him. He comes to Jesus, and he's not looking to worship Jesus. He's not looking to listen to the words of Jesus and obey Jesus. He's looking to see if Jesus will give him what he really wants. And in this case, it's money. Now before we get all judgmental with this guy, uh, how often do our prayers reflect that same kind of attitude? You ever think about that? Your, your prayers are kind of a mirror into your soul. They reveal a whole lot about what you actually believe. And often our prayers are a sign that maybe we don't want Jesus, we just want what Jesus can give us. How often do our prayers kind of make Jesus into this genie that we've got some wishes for? Computer, just went out. I wonder if the lightning got it. How often do you find yourself praying more for your children's safety than their salvation? Do you ever find yourself praying more for your situation to change than for your heart to change? To change. Do you find yourself praying more for your physical health than your spiritual health? Do you find yourself praying more for your financial freedom than from freedom of sin? Do you find yourself praying more for your, your success, for your kingdom, rather than for God's kingdom? Often our prayers reveal that we don't really want Jesus. We just want what we think he can give us. Well, Jesus only gives one command in this whole passage. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And so we need to talk about what, is, what does it mean to covet? And so again, this is back in the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten. So if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, you see the Tenth Commandment. God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And so to covet simply means to desire something deeply. Okay, so th- there are things actually the Bible tells you to covet. Okay, we should covet God. But we ought not covet things that belong to somebody else. That's what he's concerned about in the Tenth Commandment. And notice that there's, there's seven things that we ought not covet. Don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, the male servant, the female servant, the ox, the donkey, or anything else. Seven. It's a nice, round Hebrew number that means complete. He's he's indicating the totality of this. Look, don't desire things that don't belong to you. It's a comprehensive command. To covet is to have an ungodly desire for anything that belongs to somebody else. And so you go to the New Testament, and Paul actually takes it a step further. Colossians 3.5, he calls it idolatry. He calls coveting idolatry. He says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion. He goes on to add evil desires and greed and covetousness. And then he says this about covetousness. He says, which is idolatry. And so Paul's essentially saying that, look, the Tenth Commandment in the First Commandment are the same thing. They're like bookends. To to covet something is to deny God's providence, that you don't believe that he can actually give you everything that you need. It's the opposite. Think about this. Coveting is the opposite of contentment. And so, covetousness is desiring something other than God to the point that you lose your contentment in God. And so Jesus says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. And so to be on guard, that implies that you need to protect yourself from this. You're trying to prevent something. When you're on guard, you're trying to prevent something from hurting you or, or destroying you. And so this assumes that covetousness is on the attack, that it's dangerous. And if you think about it, it may be the most dangerous of the Ten Commandments because covetousness is not something that you can really see. It's not something that it's easily, you don't easily discern. it. Often you're coveting and you don't even realize it. And the danger is, is because it's, it impacts what your heart is worshiping. That's why he calls it Idolatry. You're worshiping the wrong thing. It's a root sin. It leads to other sins. Paul Paul says that, First Timothy six. But godliness with contentment is great gain, he says. For we brought nothing into this world, we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these things we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare and to many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so Jesus says, take care, be on your guard against covetousness. And unfortunately, we live in a world that really in, tries to inspire us to covet. You think about it; our whole financial system is built on it, right? I mean, capitalism does not work apart from people coveting things. Supply and demand. If people are content, demand goes way down, right? I, I, I called the the cable company this past week, trying to get my internet bill down because you know how you. By internet, and it just seems like it goes up every year. And so I thought, well, maybe they can give me an introductory price again. And so I call, and what do they try to do? They try to sell me a package that's twice as much as what I'm paying right now because I can't live without, like, hundreds of channels of cable, right? But that's the world we live in. And uh, look, I'm, I'm not pushing for socialism. I don't think socialism is, is the answer. The gospel is the answer, right? Socialism just changes the problem. The gospel is what we need to run to. And unfortunately, in the world that we live with, many who claim to follow Christ are sharing a different gospel. The prosperity gospel continues to grow like a disease. And at the heart of the prosperity gospel is covetousness. What is it? Believe in Jesus and you'll be rich. How does Jesus respond to that? Take care. Be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In other words, don't find your identity and your stuff and your financial stability and your success. That's not your life. And so the parable that Jesus shares here highlights that point. And it also, though, shows how we are to guard against covetousness. Okay? So it's one, say, one thing to say, look, this is dangerous, don't do it, but now what do we do about it? How, how do we guard our hearts against covetousness? Notice that this man's problem in the parable is not that he's rich. Okay, that's not the problem. The problem is that he's greedy. Okay, him being a productive farmer, we need productive farmers, right? The problem is not him being a productive farmer. That's not the issue. The problem is what he wanted to do with his wealth. He wanted to hoard all of his stuff so that he could selfishly relax and eat and be merry. But God essentially says to them, look, you're a fool, Tonight, God is going to take your soul. You're going to die, and all the things that you've worked for, everything that you've invested in your life, it's going to be gone. Everything that you've put your identity in is going to be gone. And what are you going to be left? Even your soul will be sacrificed. This rich fool had bought into the lie that, that stuff, that his money, that his possessions could fully satisfy him. It's a, it's a lie that, if we're honest, all of us have bought into, at least at some level. And, that, and really, that's the logical conclusion if there's no God and if there's no resurrection. Okay? That, that's exactly what Paul says in First Corinthians 15. If, if the dead are not raised, if, if there's no afterlife, if, we're not, if there's nothing after this, I mean, we might as well just eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there's no afterlife, if, if there is no resurrection, don't come back next week. Okay, Easter means nothing to us. Instead, you ought to just spend your life maximizing your pleasure now because this is your best life now, and that's all there is. Jesus concludes with this warning then, and this should take us back. He says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He's looking at his disciples, and I can kind of picture him. He turns from the crowd, and he looks specifically at his disciples, and he says, look, this could be you. And I think that's what he's saying to us today. This could be us if you don't guard your heart. And so what does it mean to be rich towards God? I think this is how we guard ourselves from covetousness. Being rich towards God is this. It's the opposite of laying up earthly treasures for yourself. It's the opposite of believing that your life consists of the abundance of possessions. You see, being rich towards God is realizing realizing that life is not about getting more goods, it's about getting more God. Being rich towards God is your heart moving towards God, it's about looking to God for your satisfaction and your joy. It's about knowing that God is your greatest treasure. Being rich towards God means that you use your earthly riches to show how much you value God. This is what the farmer failed to do, right? I mean, how should the farmer have responded to the prosperity that he was experiencing? He should have said, thank you, Lord. I don't deserve this, I don't deserve this harvest, this is your harvest, you created me, you created this harvest, this harvest belongs to you, I want to use what you have given me, I understand that I am a steward, and I've just been called to manage what you have given me, and so I want to do that in a way that honors you and glorifies you, and so how can I do that, Lord? That should have been his response, I want to, I want to use the resources that you have provided me to express how much I value you. How much I treasure you. And so you should ask yourself, is, are, is your money and the possessions that you have a tool by which you express how much God is to you? Do they show how much you value God, or are they simply a tool to achieve comfort in this lifetime. Mercy Hill, we all struggle with this sin. It is in our face constantly, and it is so destructive. I've seen it destroy families, create an insane amount of debt. It can enslave you. It can wreck your job. It can wreck your life. It can wreck your soul. And so how should we respond to this sin today? What does repentance look like? Well, first of all, if you're not a believer and you feel this struggle, like you recognize that this is something you deal with, but you don't have a living, saving, a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to consider placing your trust in Christ Today, you place your allegiance with him because apart from Jesus, there is really no response to the sin. You don't have the resources to deal with this sin apart from Christ. And so, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, run to him. He is your only hope, He is the only one that can free you from covetousness. Now, if you are a believer, and God maybe is opening up your eyes to see that this is a sin that you really struggle with. Maybe this is your sin. Like, this is you. You, you recognize, that I'm, man, I, I really struggle with this. Let me, let me suggest to you very quickly, we're going to walk through seven things. And this is where, oh, look at you, remote control and everything on your phone. I'm impressed. It's like there's nobody back there. How's she doing this? It's magic. It's magic. I want to walk through seven things. I want to get just really practical, okay? Really practical. What are seven things that you can do to guard against covetousness and grow in your richness towards God? If you're taking notes, I would highly encourage you to write these down. Number one, be self-aware. You should periodically ask yourself, okay, what am I coveting? This is a a struggle we all deal with, and so we should constantly be asking ourselves that question. That may be even a good question. If you're in a one-to-one, and accountability kind of relationship, that's a good question to ask one another. What are you coveting right now? When you feel emotional, when you get angry or you're frustrated or you're sad or depressed, That's a good opportunity for you to ask yourself, okay, is there something that I'm coveting that's causing me? Remember, emotions are like smoke. They're they're not the source of the problem, but if you follow them, they're going to lead you to the source. It's it's hard to guard your heart if you don't know your heart. And So be more self-aware. Number two, be aware of your culture's encouragement to covet. We've talked about this already. Our our culture is not a friend of contentment. Uh, our our culture screams, "Greed is good. Covetousness is normal." And so we need to stop and remember that every once in a while, uh, wh- when we turn on the TV and we see these commercials, I mean, uh, what was the last at the last Super Bowl? How much did a thirty-second commercial cost? We, we talked about this, I think, at MC, what do we say, like, like $5 million or something for 30 seconds. Why do companies spend that much money is because they play on our covetousness, right? That, that's the world that we live in. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that, especially before we make big purchases. We need to be asking the question, okay, is this something that I truly need or is this something that I'm just looking to comfort myself? Is this, how is this going to honor and glorify God? Number three, reflect on the foolishness of storing up earthly possessions. Reflect on the foolishness of storing up earthly possessions. Storing up earthly treasures, think about it. It's just—it's exhausting. It's like chasing a mirage. There is never enough you're going to have. There will always be something bigger, better, shinier. And at the end of the day, you don't take any of it with you. So reflect on that. Number four, limit the occasions that trigger coveting limit the occasions that trigger coveting we need to m- make a conscious effort to limit the opportunities that we have uh, you need to know what triggers you and you need to limit those opportunities Ma- maybe for you that means you stop watching hgtv okay <laughs> i think that show, does, show is just built to make you jealous <laughs> all right <laughs> the whole channel is maybe for you that means you take a break from social media i mean social media just it thrives on us comparing ourselves to other people. Maybe that means you, you just don't go to the mall, okay? You, you just don't go and walk through the mall. Maybe for you, I would highly encourage you, if you have not set up filters and accountability with your computer, you need to do that. There is too many tra- there's way too many temptations there. You need to limit the occasions to, that, that trigger your, your coveting. You need to come up with strategies to limit them. Number five. Increase your trust in and your gratitude of God's providence. This is something that I need to remind myself often. I would encourage you, start a journal if you haven't done that already. If you have a journal, look back through it. You, a journal is a wonderful tool that allows you to keep track of the faithfulness of God through your life. And so when difficult times come, you can look back and see how God has provided for you over and over and over again. And in the midst of the trial, a lot of times, that's what God uses to pull you out of it. That's what he uses to to pull you out of the mire that you feel like you're in, and you feel like you're just sinking in the sand. Be reminded of God's providence. When you take communion today, take it seriously. This is an opportunity for you to be reminded of what Christ has done for you, of his faithfulness. Number six, cultivate generosity. Cultivate generosity. Cultivating generosity, this is a great weapon against covetousness. It's, it's more blessed to give than receive, right? Generosity, what does it do? It seeks to serve others even at the expense of yourself. That's the opposite of covetousness, right? Covetousness looks to, on the other hand, it it desires to take from other people so that you can serve yourself. And so cultivating generosity, it's it's a great weapon against covetousness. And so, like, rethinking retirement, right? Uh, Retirement is not for getting more opportunities to play golf and travel and hang out at the lake. Retirement is for you to have more opportunities. Your time is freed up so that you can serve God and serve others. Financial peace is not about having more freedom to to spend money on things that comfort you. Financial freedom, Financial Peace University, is ultimately about freeing up your finances so you can be more generous because it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Number seven, and this may be the most important one, cultivate contentment. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter four, and so go to the right in your Bible. Eventually you're going to hit Philippians. Philippians chapter four, Paul shares that he has learned the secret to contentment. He even says it. uses that word. And so in Philippians chapter four, I'm going to start in verse 10. Paul, writing to this church in Philippi, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received or revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And so evidently this church has... uh, given Paul some, some support. Now, I, would, I would guess some kind of uh, either financial support or maybe they've sent him food or prayers or people. I don't, I don't know what it is exactly. But he says this. Okay, so he's, he's grateful for them doing that. Verse 11, though. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound, because he recognizes it doesn't matter how much money you actually have, you can be covetousness. I mean, you're, it doesn't matter how rich you are. You never really think you're rich. There's always somebody that's richer. And so he says, look, I've learned the, the secret of being content no matter what my circumstance is, whether I'm rich or whether I'm, I'm poor. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, so again, that passage that we take out of context is not, Paul is not saying I, that, look, uh, man, because of Christ, I can jump higher and run faster. Okay, he's not saying that at all. He's saying, look, I appreciate your, your concern for me, but understand that I'm not in any kind of need because I've got Christ. It's about his ability to find peace no matter what his circumstance is. And so how does he do that? Well, you've got to look back at the previous two verses. Look at verse 8 and 9. This is the context of that, that passage. He says, finally, he's encouraging the church to do this. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. And whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what? And the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul is encouraging this church to cultivate peace. How? By thinking about these things and then looking at his life and imitating it, being obedient to Christ. These are the things that are going to give you Contentment. He's saying, look, "Look, keep your mind in the clouds." In a sense, <laughs> so he's saying, "Look, keep your mind. Set your mind on the things above." And I want to, I want you to think about, man. Imagine heaven, a place where there is no more coveting. What would that mean? It would mean there. I mean, there'd be no more envy. No more jealousy. There'd be no more lust or adultery. There'd be no more materialism. No more keeping up with the Joneses. No more backstabbing and lying and cheating for selfish gain. There'd be no more hoarding. No more comparing yourself to others. No more addiction. No more gluttony. No more worrying about What others think of you. I mean, heaven is a place of complete contentment, a place of perfect rest, a place where you will experience true and lasting peace forever. I love how Paul ends his letter to the Philippians. He thanks them for their generosity, and then he encourages them to trust in God's provision. He says, I, I, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so he's grateful for what they've given him. And then he says this, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He encourages them to trust in the providence of God. And then what does he do? He breaks out in worship. It's the doxology to our God and Father to be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see contentment creates worship. And worship cultivates contentment. As you find your peace, especially when you find your when you find that peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of a trial because God is just amazed you and shocked you, and sometimes you don't even understand why you have a peace. Like, you should not have peace in this situation at all, but somehow God has given that to you and, and you recognize that. What does it cause you to do? You praise Him and you worship Him because of that. And then, like I talked about when I first got up here, when you come in and you, you sing these words together, especially in a corporate setting, I think it's it's enhanced, when you worship God, what are you doing? You're reminding your soul of the mercies of God. Man, how important is it that we do that often? Mm. When you do that, you cultivate contentment in your heart. And so next Sunday, of course, is Easter and there's a good chance, and I, I hope, and I hope you're praying for this. I'm praying for the, this that there will be visitors. This is our first Easter in this building. I, I'm, I'm pumped. And I, I pray that God would use this space next week to bring in people that don't know Christ. There may be people that walk in this room next week that haven't been to church in years. And they have been looking for hope in all the wrong places. And I pray that when they walk in here, they don't just feel welcomed, but they get a taste of heaven. Because they see a family of worshipers who are sold out for Christ, authentic in their worship. And so let's start preparing our hearts Now, today, to explode in worship next week as we celebrate the resurrection. And that happens by cultivating contentment in our hearts. And so this is my prayer. I pray that when they come in here, they would see believers that have a deep trust and a a deep love for Jesus, a deep love for one another, and they have an authentic peace. I, I remember when I first really saw the gospel as something I needed. Okay, I grew up in church, but I, the gospel, and many of you know this, didn't become significant until I got to college. But one of the reasons that I was drawn to Christ, the, one, the way that God opened up my eyes is because I saw these people that had a joy and a peace about them that I did not have. And that only happens by the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And so let's pray that God would do a miracle today in our hearts.